Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who are new here, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Van Cleveland. I'm the teaching pastor here at Blue Oaks, and I'm going to try to answer the question today, is God pro-war? Uh, before this series started, I committed to teaching uh, this topic, and when I started studying, I thought to myself, what was I thinking? Um, so I'm going to just do the best shot I can. Uh, if some things uh, uh, don't make any sense, uh, I've had the flu really bad and I'm heavily medicated. So, <laughs> All right, this subject today has troubled people for a long time. Uh, it's a very serious subject. Uh, in the second century, a character named uh, Marcion said there was an irreconcilable gap between the loving God that Jesus taught about uh, versus the, what he said was the cruel, violent God of the Old Testament. And his solution was to do kind of a, a cut-and-paste job where he removed the Old Testament from the canon uh, of Scripture. So is that what we should do? Or should we just ignore hard passages? Should we just avoid these passages and not talk about them? Well, today we're going to face this subject head-on. And I want you to know up front, I don't have all the answers on this. Uh, there are aspects of this subject that I still find quite difficult to understand. Uh, and I'm going to ask us all that we would work real hard today uh, because there's no way that we can have a deep, authentic faith in God. There's no way to do that if we don't, with as much maturity and patience and attention as we can muster, just honestly face topics like this head on. Um, so I want to start with probably one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 7. Moses is talking to the Israelites before they enter in the Promised Land. And he tells them the rules that will govern the warfare as they enter into Canaan, the Promised Land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These were all the people who lived in uh, what was called Canaan, the promised land. Seven nations, larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then he goes on to talk about more of that. Uh, look at one more verse, verse 16. These are very striking words. You must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. 
Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. And if you have read through the Old Testament, you know at certain points this is exactly what we're told happened. Um, all right, we're going to look through a number of passages today. This is one from Joshua 6, 21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now, what's going on? Like, why all this devastation? Well, in this message, all I really want to do is to make fundamental observations about the key features of the role of war in the Old Testament. Um, I just want to let you know up front, uh, we're not going to do very much by way of application today. All right? Um, and I want to just say a word about that. Sometimes people in churches have a way of over-spiritualizing uh, texts like these. You know, they'll read passages about battles, and then they'll talk about how what it means is God will strengthen me in battles against fear or other obstacles in my life. And of course, that's true. But to honor scripture, you have to start with the literal text. And these were real battles with real people, and that's what we're going to look at today. Our goal essentially in this time together is to understand that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the Father Jesus described that he loves so deeply in the New Testament. So several observations about key features of the role of war in the Old Testament. The first observation is this. The term holy war is never used in Scripture. It's a phrase used a lot in our day. Uh, the word holy is used to describe many things that are set apart for God, many things. But in the Old Testament, it's never applied to war. Uh, there is nothing holy about war. Uh, scholars debate where this phrase comes from. Uh, they think it has a Greek origin, but it's not found in Scripture. Uh, the first episode of violence in Scripture uh, does not occur until after the fall. Uh, this is not the case in virtually all other religions in Israel in that day, uh, where the gods themselves were violent by nature. Uh, in the Bible, violence does not occur until after the fall when Cain kills Abel. And therefore, the primary indicator of the fallenness of the world, what's most displeasing about it to God, is deep violence. In Genesis 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So this was deeply disturbing to God. You'll never understand the Old Testament world unless you understand the extent to which it was dominated by violence and war. This is why the Hebrew word for war is used over 300 times in the Old Testament. I'll show you how common it was to kind of give you a backdrop to this. When I say the word spring, what association comes to your mind? So just do me a favor, turn to the person next to you, just one word. When you hear the word spring, what's the word that comes to your mind? Just tell that person. All right, let me see a show of hands on this one, all right? How many of you associate it with uh, recreation, something outside, spring break? Would you raise your hand? How many of you associate it with uh, baseball, like spring training, uh, or the Chicago Cubs, all right? Um, how many of you associate it with spring cleaning? My mom would be disappointed. 
how many of you associate with like flowers and things blooming? Okay. Uh, I want you to notice this. You'll have seen this verse before in uh, maybe kind of passed over it. Uh, 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. It tells the story of David and Bathsheba. Look what the writer says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. And then the writer goes on to tell the story. It's that time of the year. Just as casual as we would talk about spring training in baseball that's uh, coming around. It's just the context of that world, and it's so different from our society. Uh, now, it's not different from all parts of our world. Uh, um, there's some parts of our world that are not very different than the ancient world in this regard. Uh, take Syria, for example. Uh, since 2011, uh, war has been raging in Syria, uh, creating the largest refugee and displacement crisis of our, uh, crisis of our time. About 6.7 million Syrians are now refugees. About 6.2 million are displaced within Syria. And the population of Syria in 2011 was 20 million people. And the war in Syria has claimed the lives of an estimated 500,000 people. So that's part of our world today. In the ancient world, people lived in what might be called the culture of war. And what sounds like cruelty to us was not for them. It was just standard operating procedure in the spring, a time when kings would go off to war. Now, I want to say this. War is one of those institutions like uh, polygamy, like divorce, like slavery that pervaded the world in which Israel was born because of the fallenness of the human race. And God forms a nation and he moves one step at a time all the way through to Jesus' day to teach the human race that there is a better way. But violence came when the fall came, and God was deeply disturbed by it. It was not holy. All right, a second observation. The wars in the Old Testament are to be understood as judgment on evil by a holy God. The wars that we read about in the Old Testament as commanded by God are in part an expression of God's judgment on evil, uh, the evil of the Canaanite culture. Uh, there's a very important statement in this regard in Genesis 15, 16. Uh, God is promising to Abraham land for his people, but he says they can't occupy it yet. And God gives a real important reason why they can't occupy it yet. He says, in the fourth generation, this is a way of saying, sometime in the distant future, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Abraham is in Canaan, so in the promised land, when God is talking to him, he says, you can't have this land now. It will happen in the future. Because the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. Um, so now the Amorites here is basically shorthand for the people who live in Canaan in the promised land. Uh, God is saying in Abraham's time, their culture is defiled. It's, it's quite wicked, but not yet past the point of return. So in effect, God is going to offer mercy to the people who live in Canaan. He's going to give them a chance to change. And we know from Joshua 2, uh, from Rahab, the story of Rahab, that even in Jericho, the people had heard about the God of Israel and his deliverance of his people and the great works that he had done, and Rahab herself put her trust in God. But the Canaanites as a whole did not repent, and, and their sin actually reached its full measure. Uh, this is reflected many places in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18 is a catalog of all kinds of 
twisted practices that were a part of the Canaanite religion. Uh, one of the practices listed is the sacrifice of children to the god called Molech. And there is evidence from the culture that this was practiced regularly uh, with firstborn children in the Canaanite religion. Uh, it happened so long ago that we just kind of, you know, brush over it. Uh, but you will not understand God's concern over the Canaanites unless you actually let that sink in. And so I want to use a more contemporary example of a culture that was headed toward a full measure of sin, uh, Nazi Germany. One instance, one child was written by a historian named Philip Friedman. This is an eyewitness account of what happened to the, a Jewish girl in a Warsaw ghetto during the Nazi, Nazi occupation. This actually happened. Uh, Zasha was a little girl. Uh, one of the Germans became aware of her beautiful diamond-like dark eyes. I could make two rings out of them, he said, one for myself and one for my wife. His colleague was holding the girl. Let's see, see whether they really are so beautiful. Better yet, let's examine them in our hands. The soldiers began to laugh. One of the wittiest suggested they cut out her eyes. What happened next was that the little girl fainted and was lying on the floor, and instead of eyes, two bloody wounds were staring. And the mother, driven mad, was held back by the other women, and soon after, they decided it was necessary to annihilate the blind child. And that's one child. You multiply the murder of one child after another, after another, generation after generation. Imagine that being done in the name of God. And think about what it does to the children who survive and are brought up in a culture like that. And then you begin to get some sense of what it means for a culture to reach its full measure of sin. And God says it has to be stopped. These wars are to be understood, the writers of Scripture teach, as part of the expression of the judgment on evil by a holy God. Next observation. These wars are not just an expression of judgment on evil. In addition, the Canaanites had to be removed if Israel's worship of the one true God was to survive. Uh, it's very clear to God that Israel's devotion to him is very immature and it's very fragile. And if the Canaanites are allowed to remain in Israel, the Israelites will be seduced into the same kinds of practices. Uh, more rules are found in Deuteronomy 20 for warfare. And God says, when you go to cities outside the promised land, begin by offering peace. However, for the cities of Canaan, destroy their populations utterly. And then Deuteronomy 20:18, God says, otherwise they will teach you to follow all their detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. I'll give you one example of this. And this comes from the tablet uh, that's uh, a tablet that's excavated from the city that was near Canaan. A lot of excavation has taken place that has shed a lot of light in our day on the Canaanite religious practices. Uh, this information is on this tablet that tells us about the God of Baal, uh, who is the God of fertility. Uh, in the Canaanite culture, in a Canaanite religion, he's, he's killed by another God called Mat, uh, who is the God of barrenness and death. And Mat, in turn, was killed by the goddess named Anath. And so Baal now comes back, and again, this is a part of their religion. Uh, people are learning this. Children are learning this. Uh, Baal comes back to life, and Baal, having sexual intercourse with Anath, is what ensures the fertility of the earth for another growing season. 
And for the Canaanites, every year when the rain would stop, which was in May, uh, it was as if Baal had died. And so for them, sexual activity with cultic prostitutes was designed to induce Baal to make the earth fertile again. One scholar says sexual intercourse with temple prostitutes was as much a part of the job of a farmer as actual operations of agriculture. This is the main activity of Canaanite worship. Again, you have to think about this in terms of real people. I mean, think about how protective dads are of daughters in our society. I know a dad who, when his daughter was not a year old yet, just learning to talk, he taught her this little routine. He would say, what does a girl on a date say? She would say, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now imagine a culture where fathers are used to their daughters growing up and becoming involved in this kind of activity. And that's their religion. This is one of the reasons why in Old Testament languages, as you read through the Old Testament, so often the writers will use this language or this imagery of Israel being seduced by other gods. It was literally so. And God says, this must be stopped. If worship of the one true God, if monotheism, which had never existed in the world before, was to survive, it had to be stopped. Let me give you an analogy that may help. Uh, In the world of medicine, a surgeon does not hesitate to amputate part of the body to save the life of the patient. Uh, Amputation will cause great pain. It will involve enormous loss. But when life is at stake, the doctor will do whatever it has to do, whatever he has to do in a heartbeat. And in a real sense, the spiritual destiny of the world God wants to bless and save through his people is at stake. And so God orders surgery. There's no other way for the worship of the one true God to survive. And in fact, as history is played out, this concern is absolutely justified. Wherever Israel allowed Baal worship to continue, Canaanite populations to go on, Israel gets seduced into it. And you see this all the way back in Numbers 25. Numbers 25 says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, an unfortunate name for a city, but as Israel is getting ready to occupy the promised land, the men begin to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to to the sacrifices to their gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the God of Peor. So in in a very real sense, these wars were about not just the physical survival of the Israelites, but also about the survival, the spiritual survival of the worship of the one true God. All right, the fourth observation about war in the Old Testament is God plays no favorites. Uh, Just as God could and did use Israel as an instrument of judgment against other nations, so God could and did use other nations as an instrument of judgment against Israel. Uh, Israel would have to learn that God would not be like this genie in a bottle to be their secret weapon anytime they went to war just because they were his people. Um, Now, God starts this teaching very early, Joshua 5 when, now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up, and, and to, went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? No, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Now, there's kind of some dark humor in this encounter. 
uh, Joshua sees this man and his sword is drawn. It's like having a, a gun pointed, being ready for action. And notice the question is, whose side are you on? Like their side or our side? And he says, no. There's a lot of yes or no question. This is like an either or question. But the man here says, basically, Joshua, the question is not, is God on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? God will fight for his people, but if they defy him, God will fight against them as well. The judgment deal cuts both ways. Just because Israel is the chosen people, just because they have the Ark of the Covenant, it doesn't mean that they'll automatically win. And we begin to see this in the next chapter, Joshua 7. This is after the Battle of Jericho, uh, before the battle of, uh, or before the next battle, which is uh, listed in the book of, of Joshua as the Battle of Ai. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now that little phrase, devoted things, unfaithfully in, uh, in regard to the devoted things, is a real important phrase in this whole business of warfare. Uh, it was the Hebrew word harem, and it was a term that meant like under the ban. Uh, it's used 80 times in the Old Testament. It talks about things that were to be set apart, or things that were specifically to be set apart uh, for destruction. And now part of the idea here is that soldiers were not allowed to keep plunder, uh, but Achan does. And you can tell right away that he's in trouble. Uh, you know how parents, when they're happy with their kids, they'll use their kid's first name or their nickname or something like that? Well, he uses, the, I mean, if, you're, if your parent's mad at you, then they'll use like your middle name, right? And so Achan gets a very formal treatment here. Achan's son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. It's a real formal deal. Like he's being identified real carefully because he's in some serious trouble. And part of the idea of the devoted things is that soldiers were not allowed to keep plunder. In most armies of that day, soldiers got paid by defeating enemies and taking all their possessions. And professional soldiers got rich that way by plundering cities. They were kind of working on the commission, on a commission if you want to think about it in that way. And that's one of the ways uh, nations got addicted to war. And God, in a sense, is saying no. I mean, there were exceptions to it, but as a general rule, that was the case. Soldiers were not allowed to profit from war. Now, Achan violates this rule. He tries to profit from this battle, and he's treated very severely. He had, in effect, sided with the Canaanites, and so he's destroyed, uh, as they would have been. Now, this story, the story about this campaign in Ai, shows another distinct aspect about Israel's war. Uh, look at verse 3. Ai was probably not a very large place. Uh, the word actually means ruins in Hebrew. Uh, it was probably a settlement not worth a whole lot. And the spies come back. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, uh, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. 
At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Now you notice Israel sent two or 3,000 men. Like how many died in the attack? 36. Normally in warfare, 36 casualties out of 3,000 soldiers would not be a cause for alarm. But Joshua falls down on his face and he cries out in distress. Why? Well, generally the idea of Israel's wars were that God would do the real fighting for them. Uh, Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And Jericho would have been a great example of that. God brings down the walls and the soldiers just kind of mop up afterwards. The reason Joshua is so concerned with the loss of 36 men is he can tell the protection from God around Israel has come down. Now without God to fight for them, they're doomed. And part of why I point this out is to say this is one of the ways in which war in the Old Testament is quite different from, say, ISIS. Uh, ISIS fighters are taught to covet martyrdom. Uh, and you may have read this, as, as soon as a martyr dies, uh, he's promised entrance into paradise, according to ISIS theology. And what does he get as his reward, you know? 72 virgins. Uh, one thing I've been uh, not able to figure out is what did the 72 virgins do to be in that situation? Like, maybe it's paradise for the martyr, but it's like eternal torment for the 72 virgins? I don't know. But in these wars in the Old Testament, the thought is that God will fight for his people, and if it works out right, if they're obedient and so on, Israel's soldiers are not supposed to die. Uh, there is no exaltation of martyrdom here. Now, once the sin of Achan is resolved, God does fight for his people. And even in the first two battles recorded in Joshua, we find this pattern. Uh, Rahab, though she's a Gentile, is saved. Achan, though he's an Israelite, though his pedigree goes all the way back, he's destroyed. There are just early indications that God's concern is about faith, and God's concern is about character. It's not about being on the right side. And having kind of established these patterns then, most of the other battles in Joshua are summarized quite briefly. In Joshua 9, a group of people called the Gibeonites deceive Israel. A key verse in Joshua 9 is verse 14. Uh, they deceive Israel. They claim to have uh, come from a long way away, so they ought to be able to settle in. And the writer says, Israel did not inquire of the Lord. They allowed the Gibeonites to stay in the promised land, and they enslaved the Gibeonites. And much later, the Gibeonites' temple, uh, they tempt Israel into their uh, Baal worship. Uh, Joshua 10 is the story of another battle. A five Amorite kings attack at Gibeon. Uh, this time, Israel does consult with God and obey God, and he enables them to win. And then the next couple chapters, uh, later part of uh, 10 and chapter 11, summarize the whole rest of the military campaign. And the results are listed in Joshua 12. 
Uh, it's a list of all the kings that get defeated. Uh, verse 24 says, 31 kings in all. It's like 31 to nothing is the score. God fights for his people. And the rest of Joshua is about how the land gets divided up. And so they're occupying the land, but they don't remove all the people. Uh, they don't live happily ever after either. And then the era of judges is just kind of very up and down. And then they ask for a king. And then that's not the solution either. And that leads to a final observation that I want to make. Israel's most important learning from wars came not from military victory, but in military defeat. And I just want to draw out Israel's history as a nation. Uh, it starts in oppression in Egypt. Uh, they're in Egypt, but they're delivered, and they go into the wilderness. And then after that, there's the conquest, and that's what the book of Joshua is about. And then they enter into the United Kingdom, and now every step of their ascent is marked by violence. They leave Egypt. There's the destruction of the firstborn. There's the destruction of Pharaoh's army. They go into the wilderness. Then the conquest involves one battle after another. And then they say, we want a king. And the United Kingdom involves violence. The first guy who is crowned king in Israel is not Saul. Uh, Saul is the first one to reign. Uh, the first guy to be crowned king was the son of Gideon. Uh, the people say to Gideon, we want a king. And he says, no. They say, we want you to be the king. He says, no. But his son Abimelech says, I'll be the king. And Abimelech has uh, 70 brothers. And you know what Abimelech does? He kills all 70 of his brothers uh, because he wants to be king. So this, this whole idea of a king leads to violence. Uh, but then later on, the people still say, we want a king. And Samuel says to them, if you have a king, he'll make your boys into soldiers and he'll have them march in front of chariots. And they say, we don't care. We want a king to lead us in battle. And so they get a king. They get Saul and then they get David and then they get Solomon, uh, kings of the whole country. And there's violence between Saul and David and David's sons. And then after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. So there's no more one people. This, it's split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom in about 930, and that lasts for a couple hundred years. And then in 720, the northern kingdom, which is known as Israel, is defeated by the Assyrians, just destroyed. And the southern kingdom lasts for a little while longer until 586, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, uh, is attacked and destroyed by Babylon. And every step in the descent of Israel is marked by violence. In a sense, their descent is kind of the reversal of their rise. And some of them begin to reflect on it, and they say, when we rose as a nation, we were used as instruments of God's judgment against these other nations, and when we fell, God used these other nations, like Assyria and Babylon, as instruments of God's judgment against us. And when we were rising as a country, the walls of Jericho came down. But when the Babylonians came, the walls of Jerusalem came down. They beat 31 kings there, but now their king, Zedekiah, is the last king of Judah. And the last thing he sees are the execution of his sons. And then his eyes are cut out, and he's led to Babylon, where he dies in exile. And you have to understand, this is the great crisis 
of Israel. Israel ends up exactly where they started out, under subjugation of another power. This is the great spiritual and theological crisis in this nation's history because now they have to ask, is the covenant gone? Are God's promises wiped out? And a lot of them think what's going to happen is, well, we're going to get to power again. And by force, we're going to make it, you know, back up to the top again. And maybe their history would just be this series of rises and falls based on power. But among God's inspired prophets, at this great crisis, arose a new and better vision, something no human being had ever conceived before. Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah, he's still alive during these days. He calls the people to repent, and they don't. And he sees what looks like the end of this nation, all these people. And he comes to the conclusion that what's needed is not another shot at the old covenant, not the power to wage war with greater violence on their enemies. Because you need to understand in the Old Testament, the problem is not that Israel failed and maybe some other country or some other ethnic group would have done better. Uh, I mean, their story is our story. Their sin is our sin. What was needed was a new kind of person. And so Jeremiah says in verse 31, in, in chapter 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with my people with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There will be a new kind of person, God says. One of the most striking prophecies to come out of this history came from a prophet named Zechariah a long time after Judah fell. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. A shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now a king, well, just that term king, would conjure up to all kinds of oppressed people images of military power. And then he says, riding on a donkey. Do kings ride on donkeys? No. They rode on chariots pulled by stallions, war horses. A donkey is a farm animal. I mean, if you want to understand this in contemporary language, it would be like saying the commander-in-chief comes riding into Washington in a smart car. Like, or on a John Deere tractor, you know, something that would be used in agriculture. What kind of king comes riding into an occupied capital on a donkey? Well, one did, one day. Verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim victory to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
You see, it took this long in the human race for at least a few people to understand that the old way is not going to work. That violence and force, which seemed to sinful people still to be the strongest tools in the world, were not nearly strong enough to usher in God's kingdom to transform a human heart. And finally, God would judge in God's time that at least a few among the human race would be ready for a king who would arrive on a donkey. And on the night that he arrived on this earth, God's angels would sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. And finally, God judged in his good time that a few at least were ready to learn from the Prince of Peace. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A few would be ready to follow him as he said, not blessed are the warriors, not blessed are the conquerors, but blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. The Prince of Peace said, now at last it will be clear that the people of God will not be a political nation armed with swords and chariots ready to inflict suffering on the rest of the world, but a church armed with love and prayer ready to endure suffering on behalf of the world. That's why events like the Crusades were so tragic. Because they completely misread scripture as if Jesus had never come, as if the church was never born. They forgot that when Jesus came, he didn't kill infidels. He died for them. Blessed are the peacemakers. So I want to ask us to end today by just spending a few moments praying for peace in our world. And I just want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment And I want to ask you if you would just pray silently, however God leads you in this regard. And then the band is going to lead us in a closing song. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, For directions or information about What we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.